Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Today my guest is Emily B. Barrant. Barron, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So, I this every time I have a topic like this, I I always ask my guests, how do you find, how did you get into this topic? Is it was it is it personal or is it uh, was it just curiosity that got you into this? Because the topic we are going to discuss today is about Jehovah's Witness prosecution in the Soviet Union, which is very. Specifically, and then it's not very many sources on this. So, can you tell me a little bit about how you got interested in this? Sure. Yeah, that was a common question when I was doing research. Was kind of really the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, because I, I do think it seems kind of immediately obscure to most people, who typically most people don't know much about the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, at least in it, the United States, they're kind it's of kind of, of like a joke, right? They kind of like a little bit of a joke. In a sense, I mean, if you ask someone in the U.S., they will say something about people coming to their door. That is, by and large, yeah. what people know about witnesses. Maybe they know that they don't celebrate birthdays. Maybe they know that they don't accept blood transfusion. That's usually mm. the top three things people know about Jehovah's Witnesses, if they know anything. And oftentimes, when people describe to me having met a Jehovah's Witness, I am almost certain they have not met a Jehovah's Witness because they tend to be describing Mormons or other missionaries because. Um, oftentimes the description doesn't match um, how Jehovah's Witnesses carry out um, evangel- uh, sort of uh, evangelizing. Um, but I got into the topic knowing similarly nothing about Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm not a Jehovah's Witness, wasn't raised one, can't say that I ever knew any Jehovah's Witnesses in any real fat way, um, and just kind of stumbled upon it as an undergraduate um, at McAllister College, which is in Minnesota. Uh, I took a course on uh, Soviet religious history or Russian religious history, I think. And the last assignment was really just to do a little bit of independent reading on what was happening in Russia. So this was the 90s, what was happening in Russia in the 90s regarding religion. And so in doing a really cursory internet search, uh, probably not on Google, it's probably on like Yahoo or, or some other like defunct um, search engine. I found um, out about Jehovah's Witnesses having been in Russia and having been in the Soviet Union. Uh, The article that I found was actually about a trial against Jehovah's Witnesses that was taking place at the time. So this was again, the late nineties in Moscow against Jehovah's Witnesses. So that was interesting um, that there was this ongoing uh, legal battle. And um, the article casually mentioned that some of the witnesses who had testified at the trial, uh, witnesses with a capital W, had been witnesses for over 50 years. They've been witnesses in the Stalin era. And I thought, well, that has got to be an interesting story because everything I know about Stalinism and the Soviet Union and what was legally permissible 
really doesn't allow much space for there to have been Jehovah's Witnesses. And so I ended up being interested enough to do um, my undergraduate research on it. Um, and then I went to graduate school and kind of thought, well, I'm going to pick something totally different. I really didn't think I would continue more research on it. But I ended up pretty quickly reading more articles about the witnesses my first year in graduate school and realizing there was a lot more to this story that I had not even touched as an undergraduate, um, reading what was available just through, you know, libraries. So I just touched a little bit about this, but like, how do you go about finding research on this? Because like, to compare with ancient Rome, it's there are other sources and books left and right, right? But with this, I well, don't we, imagine there is much books and sources on the topic. There's a surprising amount, especially if you're willing to dig for it. Uh, for one, my undergraduate paper was entirely based on Soviet era anti-religious works that were published about the witnesses. And there's a lot of them. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of full length books just about Jehovah's Witnesses published in the Soviet Union. And then there's a lot of books that are also published about sectarians writ large, which was the kind of catch all term for anyone who did not fit into orthodoxy, um, Catholicism or any sort of, uh, you know, and this is more a general two. question, but how did the Soviet Union view religion in the general way? Well, generally speaking, uh, you know, the Soviet Union was governed by a communist ideology, the underlying assumption of which was that as you made progress towards uh, communism, this kind of classless utopia that you were supposed to be establishing, religion would, um, and here the mechanism was not exactly clear, religion would begin to fade um, in importance and would eventually disappear because structurally the assumption was that it was um, reliant on the institutions of capitalism um, to exist and so you wouldn't need religion there would be no reason for religion to continue into that utopian state now exactly how that was going to happen was not clear and the soviet union um, depending on who you asked um, scholars of this issue sort of communist theoreticians kind of differed on whether or not it would wither naturally or whether the state needed to kind of help it along the extent to which the state needed to intervene and kind of bring people to an understanding of atheism. Um, but certainly I think it's fair to say that the state was fairly hostile to religion. Um, that said, in the period I look at, which is after World War II, there's quite a lot of legal religious life going on in the Soviet Union. The Orthodox Church is technically legal. It has a, an institutional structure. It has churches that are allowed to operate. It has clergy. It has a limited capacity to train new clergy. Um, to print books, um, engage in international ecumenical activities. Same is true of um, some of the other more mainstream religions. Uh, that was not true of the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's Witnesses are never granted a kind of legal toehold toe in the Soviet Union. Um, they're actually on a list that is not published but is circulated among officials who were tasked with overseeing religious life as do not register. Like you can you can register um, a local Orthodox church, you could register a local Baptist church, you could not register um, any sort of Jehovah's Witness congregation. And that's true until just months before the Soviet Union collapses. So let's start from the very beginning. Um, how, how the, like you said, most people don't know anything about Jehovah's Witnesses, especially in the Soviet Union, but how did they get into the Soviet Union of all places? 
Well, the so the Jehovah's Witnesses by the mid 20th century are a lot of places. They start uh, in the United States first in the late 19th century, and by the interwar period, uh, there's at least some Jehovah's Witness community in most locations in Europe, um, and to a lesser degree, other parts of the the world. Where there were Jehovah's Witnesses that made a difference for the Soviet Union was in the borderlands near the Soviet Union. So although there's there's a scattered sort of interest. We have a couple examples of people writing letters to the international organization, um, kind of individual interest. Um, there's no organized witness activity prior to World War II in the Soviet Union. But next to the Soviet Union, there's a lot of organized activity in the Baltic states, um, in Poland, Belarus, uh, parts of Romania, Czechoslovakia, and of course, we know that the Soviet Union's borders shift rather dramatically uh, westward during and after the war. And so the Soviet Union kind of acquires witness as part of its territorial expansion. So it's annexing all these territories on its Western borderland and those territories have thousands of witnesses in them. So that's how witnesses become Soviet citizens. They don't actually move there by and large. They find themselves in new borders um, and suddenly they're Soviet citizens. How did people look at Jehovah's Witnesses? Was it like being a Jew? Was it like you you how did people react if they told you that they were you were a Jehovah's Witness? That's a good question and it's probably situational. So I don't know that there's one answer that describes everyone's reaction. I think like, you know, let's just say a general reaction. reaction. Now or then? Then. Then I think uh the overwhelming responses were, I don't know what this is, or this is not part of the traditionally understood patterns of religious life in my community. You have to understand that most witnesses are located in rural areas where there typically is a very strong adherence to a specific religious group in that village or a cluster of villages. It's part of the rhythms of rural life. And so witnesses were often seen as outsiders. Um, and during the war, um, there is, a, and before the war, um, in these interwar states, there's a fair amount of local hostility to witnesses. Um, and then there's a fair amount of state hostility too. Um, and those two things are interconnected. I would say that at the same time, the witnesses get a lot of new membership in that period. So not everyone is put off by them. Um, they grow rather significantly in the interwar and wartime period. So there was something about their message that at least some people found appealing. You weren't, so you weren't like sent to the gulag if you were like Jehovah's Witness or was a bigger risk for being sent to the gulag? It was an enormous risk, particularly in the Stalin era. So again, um, after the war, immediately after the war, you suddenly have Soviet Jehovah's Witnesses. Within a few years, uh, the Soviet state's aware of them. It begins mass arrests um, in uh, particularly uh, what was then Soviet Ukraine, so Western Soviet Ukraine, uh, the Baltic states, and parts of what is called Transcarpathia or Subcarpathian Rus, a kind of extreme Eastern section that um, was annexed from Czechoslovakia into the Soviet Union. And so you had these roundups, you had um, rather long prison sentences being given out to witnesses, you know, 25 years to life. Um, the death penalty is largely not in use in this period. And so you're getting an equivalent life sentence um, in some sort of hard labor camp. Uh, in 50, 1949 and 1951, so that's rather quick, uh, the state takes even more dramatic action. 
Um, it orders a secret operations, operations north and south um, that target nearly all of the witness communities in these areas. Uh, witnesses are overnight, uh, without warning, rounded up um, by military units. They're put on trains. Um, they're given minimal ability to pack. Um, and they're sent to really distant locations, um, largely in Siberia um, and a few other uh, Far Eastern or Central Asian locations. And they're just sort of special exiled was the kind of all-encompassing term for them. And so that situation was, again, rather unique to the witnesses. We don't have, um, with one exception, other religious communities targeted entirely for mass exile as a group. Um, there's another mass exile of true Orthodox Christians. It's a smaller scale. But this was, you know, several thousand witnesses, every man, woman, and child. There was no exclusion. If you were on the list as a known witness, you were exiled. So did it, did it make up a reason why you were sent to the Jewelot or was it just being a Jehovah's Witness enough? So this isn't the gulag, if we're get, sort of get, getting technical. These aren't labor camps. These are okay. kind of open settlements from which you are not allowed to leave and from which you are required to register with police. So they're a kind of dumping ground for all sorts of categories of people that the Stalinist state viewed as untrustworthy or unreliable. So Operation South solely targets the witnesses from um, a handful of locations. Operation North is much bigger um, and also involved other categories of so-called undesirables. What, so was, what was Operation order. North? This was the 1951 uh, secret order to exile several thousand Jehovah's Witnesses and other groups. And so, it, and actually the, organ, the witnesses, um, international organization just celebrated, well celebrated, commemorated um, the anniversary of that recently because it was in early April in 1951 and we're now in 2021. So it was the 70th anniversary just a few weeks ago. So what was life inside, like, do you know, do you have an idea of what life was inside these exiled, exiled areas that were sent to in Siberia, etc.? Yeah, it was incredibly difficult. Um, you know, this was, these were not developed areas. They weren't near, they were strategically not near rail stations, not near developments, not near places where there was, you know, access to education, to, to reasonable jobs, to basic infrastructure, basic social supports, medical care. Um, people often who arrived in special exile, and this isn't just witnesses, were basically told to build, you know, what they needed once they got there. Um, and so, yeah, it was, you know, it was grueling, hard labor. You were deprived of nearly all of your property, your rights. Um, you were thousands and thousands of miles from anything you had ever known in a totally foreign environment. If you, most of these people had been farmers, they're not in an area that is agriculturally familiar to them. Um, so it was devastating. Um, I think what made it less devastating was the fact that they had been exiled in their minds for a purpose, right? With, it wasn't meaningless to them. They were suddenly in this really large community of Jehovah's Witnesses. They may have been in a village where they only knew a few families who were witnesses. And you know, South suddenly they're part of this larger community they didn't even know existed. And so a lot of witnesses who experienced it, although they talk about the suffering, they also, talk a lot about what a meaningful and kind of powerful experience it was to be exiled and to realize you were part of something much bigger that you maybe really didn't know about. So how did they treat each other inside this company? Were they friendly with each other? Was it like a little hostility? I mean, I don't, I don't know of any 
hostility or strange relations among witnesses. Um, I will say that like in starting particularly in the mid to late 1950s, under, so this is after Stalin, this is mm. under um, the next leader, Nikita Khrushchev, uh, there is a concerted effort by um, security police, the KGB, um, to try to sow disinformation among witnesses, to try to use witnesses um, against one another, to try to exacerbate the fact that you still had some witnesses who hadn't been exiled in the Western parts of the Soviet Union. Then you had these Siberian communities. So there's a, there's a kind of communication breakdown that could be exploited and was. And so the kind of issue of mistrust, um, potential double agents, the sense of like, is information coming that we think is coming from the international organization, religious literature, is it genuine? Has it been faked? Um, that's that's a real issue. It starts in the 19, late 1950s and it's fully resolved, I would say, overwhelmingly by the now or in the last few decades. But that was still something to be resolved even into the post-Soviet period um, because you just didn't know um, whom to trust a lot of times. And the state was doing everything in its power to try to get you to, to trust people um, that maybe weren't always trustworthy. Um, and at the same time, you may have thought someone wasn't trustworthy or suspected them of being a double agent. And in fact, they weren't, right? And the state yeah. may have wanted you to think that. So it was very disorienting, I think, that part of it. So did they view the kind of as a martyrdom to be sent to Siberia in a way? As they, did they look I don't, as... I, they would not use the term, yeah, I wouldn't use the term martyrdom, but I'd certainly think um, that witnesses don't, they view persecution as meaningful religiously meaningful, as spiritually meaningful, as in line with our understanding of how world events will unfold as you approach a kind of end of days, um, end time scenario. And so for them, um, in their worldview in which, you know, world governments are secular, are corrupted, are um, not viable structures, um, the fact that those institutions would be persecuting to them was faith affirming, right? They expected persecution. Um, all witnesses think that that's a possibility um, as you deal with the outside world. And so um, even in current Jehovah's Witness literature, you often see examples given from uh, witnesses who um, you know, bore witness to the faith under intense persecution, either Soviet witnesses or oftentimes Nazi uh, witnesses who are also fiercely persecuted um, in Nazi Germany. So not Nazi witnesses, that's not a good phrase, but witnesses in the Nazi regime. So, what about the other witnesses that were, let's say, in Moscow that hasn't been deported yet? Why didn't did they have any chance at all to leave? To try, leave, or did it, were they expecting any time now I would be sent to Siberia as well? So there are no witnesses in Moscow. Um, and I was just using it as an example the, to. I mean, one thing to keep in mind is that like the Soviet Union has a really rigid registration system. So you can't live wherever you choose. You have to be registered to legally live any place. And actually, even in Moscow today, some of those registration, Soviet era, almost registration norms still continue to exist. Um, and so for a witness, you're not living in major urban areas. You would, you would not have achieved registration, certainly in Moscow. Um, plus, most of them were originally located either in the Western borderlands then in exile locations, the exile orders are lifted in 1965. Many of them stay out there. Um, some of them move to other rural areas. Um, some had been imprisoned in labor camps and settled outside of the labor camps once they were uh, freed.
from the terms of their prison sentences or exile. So yeah, for witnesses in the Western borderlands, the who were not picked up overnight in operations North and South. Yeah, there was a certain amount of what the heck just happened. Um, and some witnesses have written about that. Just, I mean, if you imagine you wake up one morning and like, where is everybody, right? What just happened to all of my community? Like, I have no idea where they've gone. Um, and, I, and I did speak to a few um, witnesses who had gone through that experience. Um, the state did not, it did not put a lot of effort to trying to finish Operation North. So it was, a, it was really a one time affair. If you were lucky enough, if we can use that phrase, to somehow have not been home that night, avoided it, you probably were not going to be exiled. If you were unlucky enough to have been identified wrongly, as did happen as a witness, um, for whatever reason, you were now in exile. And it was actually quite difficult to get that overturned as well, though the state did look into, um, I'm aware of at least a few cases where um, people were exiled and were not witnesses. Can you tell me about what it was like for you to speak to some of these witnesses that you mentioned? And what was the, what was it like for them? I think um, many uh, of the elderly witnesses have shared their story before. Um, some of them shared their stories, um, again, for various witness publications. So the witness organization put out a rather detailed history of witnesses in Russia. Now it might be 10, 15 years ago. I think it was in the late 2000s. Um, there's been multiple articles. So some people were quite used to speaking informally or formally about what they had experienced. I think some people I spoke to had not spoken about their experiences before. Um, I didn't do a lot of extensive interviewing for the project, but I did do some, um, mostly um, trying to connect with people that I was familiar with from archival or other sources um, and who I learned were still living and part of the organization from contacts in the current um, witness uh, offices in these various countries. And so when possible, um, I would interview someone, usually with the assistance um, for logistics sake and for contact with the person initially of the organization itself. Were you personally excited to interview them or were you nervous when you were going to speak to <laughs> um, them? I mean, as a not, I'm not trained in oral history, um, although I've, I've increasingly done it as part of my research. So I think nervous is probably accurate. Um, I think there's always a bit of a language barrier, although I, I do speak Russian and Ukrainian. Um, some of the interviews um, involve languages other than those two languages, or we were all speaking in what was not our first language. Um, and, you know, we're ta you're talking to somebody about really, you know, significant events in their life. And traumatic events also. And so I think there's a heaviness that goes with those kinds of conversations. Yeah, you want to make, make it true and make it justice for those to yes. share their stories. Yes. Okay, so the Stalin has passed away and well, well how soon are they, are they allowed to come back to, let's say civilization, call it, call it that, from the camps? So How, what is the process like kind of there? Two, there's kind of two different processes. One is after Stalin dies in the years that follow, um, there are there, a lot of the political cases against all sorts of, for all sorts of political crimes. So not primarily witnesses, um, people that have been imprisoned for other political reasons are reviewed by the state. And so um, both 
through that review process and through a series of blanket amnesties issued, uh, many, many people who had received 25 year sentences for state crimes are released early after serving only a portion of their sentence. Um, witnesses who had been sentenced uh, in a criminal court or military court um, therefore benefit from that system. So a lot of witnesses are liberated from labor camps where they had been serving time in the mid to late 1950s. For people who had been sent to special exile, that comes much later, that's not till 1965. So that's early Brezhnev era, that's actually after Nikita Khrushchev. Witnesses are one of the last groups released from special exile. Um, nearly all of special exile settlements had been dismantled by that point, um, but witnesses were still under those difficult conditions pretty late. Um, and the lifting of them did not in any way um, require the state to do anything about that, to apologize, to admit that wrongdoing had occurred, to restore property, to provide people access to return home, to allow them to reclaim property. And so while some people did go home, I mean, you couldn't go home, your house was literally not yours anymore, but they went back to their home villages. Uh, many people did not, it was logistically challenging to do so. Uh, many people had been born in exile or had grown up in exile. Um, their community was now out there. And so even today, like in places like Irkutsk province, um, Tom's province, some of the largest exile sites still have a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses from those early exile settlements. So what, what changes after Stalin died? Because the, the, does the government feel more or less guilty or do they want just want a bit less strict than Stalin was? Like even if the, giving him the finger, to speak, so to speak? I mean, the larger process is a different answer. For the witnesses, I would say that the witnesses kind of benefit secondarily from broader things happening with uh, state reforms over how they're dealing with political crimes. Uh, when witnesses have their cases reviewed, they are, they are generally not what's called rehabilitated, which is to say the state formally recognizes this case was an error, this person did not commit a crime. Um, again, their, their sentences tend to be reduced because even into the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it was still illegal to engage in organized activity as a Jehovah's Witness. That was still a crime. It becomes a different crime in terms of the criminal code. So it's a different, you're being prosecuted under a different set of statutes, but it's still a crime. You could still get arrested, tried and convicted and sent to a labor camp for it. And people were into the 1980s. Um, so you're no longer getting a 25 year sentence. Most people aren't arrested and tried. The state tends to focus on leaders. Um, people that for whatever reason they think occupy some sort of leadership position um, in the organization. Um, but there's some also just kind of ran seemingly random cases against witnesses in this period. Uh, the state moves though largely against mass criminalization, this kind of mass exile efforts and more back to what I was talking about earlier with this, how do we get people from religion to atheism? And so the late 1950s onward are this kind of sustained period of trying to convince all sorts of sectarians to become atheists. So, you know, there's all manner of ways in which this is attempted. Atheist lecture nights, atheist film nights, one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations um, from a trained agitator to, you know, a community or a family of believers. Pressure on children in the school system to take part in kind of secular activities and divorce themselves from their families' religious uh, practices. Uh, and so there's a lot of social and peer pressure 
that goes on in the decades after Stalin's um, death. So the criminal the criminalization might recede a bit, it's still there, but the social pressure increases significantly. Um, so how, how, what about when the Soviet Union collapses? How, what changes there? I mean, the 90s were a rough time for Russia in general, right? But for, especially for Jehovah's Witness, how, do, how does this thing change with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91? So in the year preceding the collapse, the under Gorbachev, the witnesses are legally um, registered. So just before the Soviet Union collapses, they're suddenly legal. Um, their organizations, international leaderships able to hold talks with Soviet religious officials to make all the paperwork happen. Um, and then of course the Soviet Union collapses and you're dealing with Russia and you know 14 other independent countries. So I'll just talk about Russia because each case is a little bit different. In Russia, uh, the early mid 1990s were a pretty positive experience I would say for Jehovah's Witnesses. This was a time in which suddenly you could do a whole lot of things you could never do before. You know, you could meet and not worry that someone's going to knock on the door and say, you're not supposed to be meeting and, and who's there. And we're going to document this meeting. Arrested, worst case scenario, lose custody of your children. You know, you could, witnesses held big conventions. Um, they rented out stadiums for this. So you could have this huge event. You know, you may never have seen more than a couple dozen fellow believers in your religious community at a time your entire life. And now you're sitting in a stadium and there's thousands of you who have, might have traveled even internationally to come to these events. Um, they have a big international center that they build just outside of Petersburg, like a printing house and offices, and you could tour it and you could work at it um, as a full-time sort of, that's sort of an equivalent of like a full-time mission. Um, it's staffed by full-time volunteers. Uh, I mean, this was just new. You could get literature. If you've ever interacted with a witness, they may have given you one of their two magazines, Watchtower Awake. You could get, you could just get those. Like they were published. They were in color. They, they were not printed in secret on some sort of secondhand paper or copied by hand. And it was, they had just come out. It was like the new issue and it came out again every two weeks. I mean, all of that was such a huge transformation. And of course, the big piece here is that you could talk about your faith to other people, which is something that every single practicing active member of the Jehovah's Witnesses does. They engage in evangelism, which means they go out and share their faith with others in the hopes that that person will also accept their faith and become one of Jehovah's Witnesses. They did that in the Soviet Union, but it was never legal and it was definitely risky, but now you could just do it. You could go up to someone on the street and talk about faith. You could knock on their door. You could go in their apartment building. And so the 90s are kind of this period of possibility. There's enormous growth in the organization. So the membership like skyrockets. Most people have never heard of the witnesses. So they're able to preach to totally new audiences. So yeah, there's a lot going on in the 90s in Russia. But for witnesses, this is a largely really positive time period. But I want to. I actually want to go back a little bit again because, what was it like for someone who were not sent to the camp? Was it difficult for a witness to to find a job in, in the Soviet Union, let's say? Right. So your typical Jehovah's Witness in the Soviet Union, there were, it's really hard to estimate numbers, but let's say there were at least forty thousand active adult, um, adherents to this religion, 
in the late Soviet period. Most of them are not, the vast majority will never face arrest, will never serve time in a labor camp. But most of them, yes, will really struggle to get decent work, well-paying work, to hold down a, a job without harassment from um, fellow workers, from their boss. They will not go to higher education or secondary institutions like technical schools. Because to do that, you had to be in good standing with the Komsomol. You could not be an active religious sectarian. That was just a no-go. So most witnesses you know, don't have a lot of job opportunities also because they don't have a lot of educational opportunities. Um, and of course, the school system was often a very negative experience because there was so much pressure on children to abandon their religion. So many witnesses, even if they could find a way to continue their education, didn't want to for that reason. Um, in general, there was just a lot of kind of constant harassment and low level scrutiny. Um, and in areas with a lot of witnesses, there was a fair amount of media harassment as well. So kind of articles um, trashing some local member of the witnesses, um, sort of trying to suggest that the witnesses were shady, that they were criminals, that they were bandits, that they had collaborated during World War II, that they were drunkards, that they were adulterers, that they didn't practice what they preached. And it, and it was very personal. These are small town newspapers that would publish regular articles like this. And so that was much more common, like that kind of level of harassment and scrutiny than an arrest would have been or much less like a, a labor camp sentence. So was it obvious that someone was a Jehovah's Witness or was it like, did you see it on them or was it like they have to tell you that they were? That's a good question. I would say that my overwhelming, my research I would say overwhelmingly suggests people generally knew. Um, and the reason for that is that one, it was hard to hide it if you had a family with children in the school system because there were certain things witnesses wouldn't do, such as, you know, various state oaths, the, you know, patriotic events or requirements, him, you know, state, state national anthem singing, military preparation exercises for young boys. They didn't join the pioneers, which was like the youth organization for the Soviet Communist Party. So you would have known that these were religious sectarians, I would say. And also, again, these are mostly witnesses in small communities. There's not a lot of witnesses that are part of big urban life. So we're talking about villages that might have had 5,000 people in them or 10,000 people. And so you kind of knew everything about your neighbors in those communities. And so you definitely knew who belonged to a illegal religious organization. I don't think that was particularly something that one could mask long-term. And again, I want to, because it's kind of, not really, but kind of similar to that, how the Jews were treated, right, in the World War II. But how did the Jehovah's Witness treat someone, other Jehovah's Witnesses that came from the camps? Was it like the Jews when they, like, why did you survive and not my family members survive? Was they interview it in that way or did they try to help each other when they came back from the camp? So that's a complicated question. If you're asking about survivor's guilt, the sort of sense of why did I survive mm. and others, why not that, not that it was necessarily a death sentence, that's minus in concentration camps, but like, did they view them differently? Did they try to help them out when they came back? 
So the, the one thing that does come to mind is there is, as I was saying, there, there was this kind of issue of police disinformation campaigns. And so at one point, it was a very concerted disinformation campaign against um, the then under one of the underground sort of elders with a very responsible position in the organization. And um, a lot of witnesses recall really not knowing whether to trust him or thinking not to trust him. And then actually finding themselves in a labor camp with him. And that was a kind of moment of shared trust of like, okay, we're all clearly together in this and we're all clearly not double agents and um, that that was in some ways helpful. Like the labor camp system could actually be helpful, helpful in resolving some of those trust issues because um, much of that situation resulted from people not communicating being at great distance from one another, different parts of the organization and the communities. And so labor camps could be a kind of unifying experience. I don't know of experiences where people distrusted people who had been in labor camps. I think um, a labor camp sentence was not viewed as suspicious because again, for witnesses, it's not at all suspicious to be prosecuted by a secular state. That, that would be something that you would not find disquieting as part of your faith. Did, did the KGB actually recruit some of the witnesses to spy against conspiracy against other witnesses? Yes, I mean, absolutely. They did that with um, all sorts of, you know, state criminal investigations into political, uh, you know, political underground activity. They certainly did it with religious groups. Um, they absolutely did it with witnesses. Um, in my research, I tried to not delve deeply into kind of who did what when. I don't think that's necessarily the most helpful, I also think it's difficult to sort out accurately. Um, I think because the evidence that we have is necessarily partial. And so even when there's evidence that a person certainly did share information with the state, we don't always know accurately why they did so. Um, did they understand what they were doing? Were they tricked into that? Um, was this a one-time act? Do we have evidence that it occurred again? Um, did they think that they were somehow helping? Did people agree to give information to the Soviet state, not intending to give accurate information or intending to use that information to help the organization. There's a lot of questions there. And so I think it's difficult to kind of neatly judge decades later. And I'm not sure that it's particularly useful to do so. So I, I generally tended to tread carefully on those types of issues with my research. You mentioned you wanted to talk about the 2014 persecutions. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So something that I don't know if everyone is aware of, I don't think it's gotten nearly as, as much media's attention as maybe it should, is that, again, I said the 90s were this positive experience. The 2000s were less so. Um, the late 1990s into the 2000s were in a period of increasing um, state hostility to witnesses. Um, and initially much of that was at a local or regional level, but as you went further into the 2000s, it became increasingly clear that this was supported and organized um, by central state authorities and with uh, their support. And so all of this culminated in 2017 when the Russian Supreme Court uh, released its decision on a series of court rulings involving witnesses. And to get really simple about it, I can talk more at length if you'd like. Um, they determined that the witnesses were a extremist organization. So that's a term that carries substantial legal weight in Russian law. 
and as an extremist organization, um, it was essentially banned. So, so it was you like the alt right, if you will. Yeah, the organization was liquidated. Um, so, like the administrative center that I spoke about outside of Petersburg is seized by the state. All the property on it is seized by the state. Um, it's now a state, you know, it's entirely state owned. Um, the witnesses couldn't bring in any literature. They couldn't possess um, any religious literature. They couldn't meet together in a religious service under the auspices of this religious group. So any kind of sustained activity, even fairly informal activity was considered operating a illegal extremist organization as if you were out like organizing Al Qaeda or, you know, ISIS. Um, these would be, a, these were sort of legal equivalents now in the, in the uh, post-Soviet Russia. So if I remember correctly, Putin came in power in 04 for the first time, right? So was this uh, when Putin came to power, power or was this before Putin? This is coterminous with Putin um, who comes to power um, as Yeltsin resigns in late 1999. Um, Putin comes in in 1999 um, as prime minister and then um, takes over after Yeltsin's, Yeltsin's resignation. Um, in the early 2000s, um, late 1990s and early 2000s, Russia suffers some terrorist attacks um, that were rather devastating. This, uh, you know, this was part of a broader global climate of anti-terrorism. They passed an anti-terrorism, anti-extremism law um, to ost ostensibly combat extremist activities, but the law is very broad. Um, and ultimately the law doesn't even require violence or engaging in violence, inciting violence to be extremist activity. It's just an incredibly vague set of things that one could do that would qualify as extremism, including basically saying that one is superior or one's beliefs are superior by dint of one's religious belief. Um, and frankly, that's kind of true of almost every religion, right? What religion doesn't mm. think, think that it possesses some unique truth? Mm. I mean, but there what? are exceptions, but generally speaking, most religions, is, most religions lay claim to some unique presumably superior truth. Otherwise, why would they suggest you join that religion and not others? And of course, um, as soon as this law was passed, there were concerns about this very fact. This seems like it could make all religion illegal. So the state kind of hastily passed a fixer legislation that said, okay, you can't use this law against the Bible, the Quran, um, the Talmud, and there's an, and I think a few other like key core scriptural texts because it was so problematic. Yeah. Um, um, that being said, I will note that after the witnesses are banned in 2017, shortly thereafter, they are taken to trial for their scripture, which is a translation of the Bible. And the court successfully argues that it is not a real Bible. It doesn't count and it can therefore be banned under this law. And so mm. even the witnesses translation of the Bible, which theoretically wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be possible to be banned has now been banned. But what about today in 2021? How are, are is it still a problem for witnesses to come out, so to speak, or is it a little bit lighter on the sentence? No, there's, there's, I would say the situation is only steadily worsening. Um, the start of the year saw a lot of convictions um, for extremist activity. Um, and so after 2017, 
um, any kind of organized activity was illegal. And it was, a, I mean, it's a serious crime. You're being, you're going to be charged with organizing the operations of an illegal extremist organization. That's a, that's a serious criminal act. Um, and many witnesses were investigated and tried for that. The, the cases took a really long time on average, over well over a year. And so we're just seeing now in the past year or so, a lot of convictions. So this, these are multi-year prison sentences by and large for ordinary witnesses, just for essentially being Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, but in the state's view for being essentially members of an illegal banned extremist organization. And there is no indication at all that this situation is improving um, or is likely to change. So would you say the kind of back in the Soviet Union again at this point? Back to the square I the, zero? I think the situation is different. I'm always leery of like, this is just like the Soviet Union. As a historian, every time period has its unique historical context and, and sort of factors at play. So I think there, it's, the comparison is unavoidable. Um, and for the average witness, certainly that comparison seems increasingly valid. I would mention, though, that the majority of witnesses being prosecuted never experienced Soviet persecution, right? This is the late 2000s. Yeah. It's been almost 20 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And most witnesses today in Russia joined in the 1990s or the early 2000s. And so they didn't experience that. Like, this isn't personally a repeat of things that they experienced. This is something new um, that they've read about that their faith maybe prepared them to expect or not be surprised by, but it's not for them like, oh, this happened to me again. Certainly it has um, to some families been a literal repeat of historical actions, but for most people, it's fundamentally new. Would you say that this is a fine point of history repeating itself in a way? No, I never like the history repeats itself. <laughs> mm. that's, one of, that's one of those phrases I tell students that history never really repeats itself. Again, because there's always, different historical factors. And so why the Soviet Union was taking actions against the witnesses isn't the same set of exact same set of reasons that, you know, the Putin administration or the yeah. current Russian state. And of course, the, the context is different. And just the social situation is way different. I mean, if you imagine being in a labor camp, or being in a witness community in the in the Stalin period, that's a much different experience than being in a witness community today in Russia. I mean, for one, everyone has phones. <laughs> so yeah. the limits of the state to control information, I mean, they try much, though, they try. Right. I mean, you can get on your phone, the Jehovah's Witness app, which is an international app. It has all of the major languages and a ton of minor languages, different forms of sign language, et cetera. And all the publications you can get like basic, like ministerial information, um, basic beliefs, all that kind of stuff, all the publications on your phone, um, you know, and in addition to any number of apps that allow you to share information, to share scripture. Um, and so, you know, when I did my research, there was a kind of constant discussion in Soviet state materials about, you know, hidden compartments, hidden bunkers, hidden printing presses, all of these kind of um, mechanics of hiding literature. And of course, now that process is so much more complicated for the state to possibly even begin to enforce. I mean, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to, like, not for the lack of trying. 
Yeah, I mean, they're trying, obviously, and a lot of these court cases involve confiscation of illegal literature. Some of them involve planting illegal literature, and I don't say that lightly. We have video surveillance of, of state authorities arriving at a location and literally putting publications that they brought with them down um, and then trying to pin them on the people that they were about to arrest. So because it's much more difficult to you know, try to determine what someone might have shared through technology. Yeah. Now, before before we go, I'm, I'm curious, how did, how did the witnesses react when you say you studied them in Soviet time? How did they react to you? I think if we're talking about sort of ordinary, just like Jehovah's Witness who comes to my door. So like the local witnesses who do come to my to my door. And I, and I know fairly well, at least before the pandemic, when we all stopped doing that, the witnesses, I would say, on a side note, have been extremely cautious in a good way about COVID um, and have really been careful about not making evangelism a way in which the COVID uh, coronavirus is spread. Um, and so they've really moved to a lot of more creative virtual events, virtual outreach um, to kind of an enormous extent. So, but before this, if someone had come to my door, which they don't, they haven't done again in 13 plus months, um, I think people's initial reaction has always been like, I didn't know anybody studied this or cared about this outside of our community um, because most people don't. Like, are it's they not positively surprised or are they like? I think so, yeah. I've, I've only had positive experiences or reactions to my research. I think there's always gonna be a certain amount of caution, a lot, if you were to Google or like look on Amazon for books about witnesses, a lot of it is written by, you know, former members, um, people of other more mainstream religious groups that are attacking their witnesses' beliefs or uh, really critical pieces of their history. And so I think witnesses are used to, if it was written by someone that is not a member of the community, it may very well be very negative. Um, but I think once that concern is assuaged, because they, you know, they know that I worked with um, local branch offices in finding information and they've read what I've written and, I'm, and I always am happy to share what I've written with witnesses. Then I think the reaction, I can't think of a reaction that hasn't been positive. It may not be the way they would tell their history. Of course it's not, right? I'm a, yeah. I'm a historian with a different set of objectives and a different way of analyzing the past um, and fundamentally not through a particular religious worldview but the story should be recognizable. And I, I hope, I think it is recognizable to, to people who lived it. Again, even if that's not the way they would tell those events exactly, they can recognize that story, it's familiar to them. So do you have anything you wish to promote on a social media or if people want to take contact with you and have questions that people can find you at? Um, well, if people want to find me, it's always easiest to just <laughs> um, Google my name. I'm the, the interim chair of the history department at Middle Tennessee State University. Um, and I will always take an email from someone who's curious. Um, I'm not particularly active on social media. Uh, I know very little even about social media beyond kind of the existence of it and that other people use it. Um, and that, you know, <laughs> so I'm Yes, that has not been a major piece of my historical work has been um, promoting it on social media. But I will say that um, really the ongoing situation in Russia has kept me invested in witnesses history. Um, I really expected it to be 
a book that I wrote and researched well over, for well over a decade, and then I was going to work on something else. And it's just really hard to move on. And I haven't really moved on entirely because, you know, of all of these enormous developments in Russia in the past decade. Um, and, you know, when I, again, when I started the research, everyone was like, really? This seems so random or obscure. And now, exactly, yeah. right? Like when my book came out, it was, it was a little bit of that, like, sure. Um, and it's kind of a strange feeling to years later have people say, well, like, of course somebody would research this. And of course this matters. And, you know, to have a little bit of a sense of like, what happens to the witnesses might tell you something bigger about uh, developments in Russia. That was an argument I always made when I tried to make people understand why study the witnesses, right? You can learn a lot about the broader society, what the state wants, what society wants from looking at marginal groups. I think it's pretty apparent that's the case if you look at Russia today. I think you know a lot about what's going on in Russia if you look at what's happening to the witnesses. So how do you think people view, view in general, like globally, on the Joe's weakness today. Can you say that again? I'm not sure. I how do how do you think people? How do how do you, do you know what how people view the weaknesses globally today? I think that's impossible to answer with like one perspective. I think in a lot of cases where witnesses have a long-standing historical presence, like the United States, much of Europe, um, a fair amount of the rest of the world. You know, witnesses are more and more familiar. Um, it's more likely someone has known a witness. Um, maybe they went to school with them. Maybe they work with them. Um, they probably still don't know much, and they probably still think that they're people that, you know, are somewhat annoying. I think, or somewhat pestering in their door-to-door -door, um, evangelism. You know, but again, there are places where witnesses had face much more hostility. Uh, Russia, a lot of more authoritarian regimes um, where witnesses aren't just not legal. And so, you know, I think public perception of witnesses is more negative and it's also more fearful because the community is associated with something that's criminal or outside of social norms, outside of what's permissible. Um, and I think that makes it much more difficult. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been definitely an interesting topic that uh, needs to be looked at more. I hope this episode will find it, you find, you find it interesting as well, if you're listening. Uh, my name is Alan. This has been Well That Aged Well. And you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube under Well That Aged Well. We are also in on Instagram under Well That Aged Well. This has been Well That Aged Well again. Thank you for coming, and I'll see you next week. 